0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, good morning everyone. You can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we'll be taking our text from this morning. We'll be looking at Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. So first off, have you ever had something staring you in the face and and not been able to see it? I, I can't tell you how many times this has happened where my wife is like, hey, can you get me this out of the fridge? And I open up the door and I'm staring in the fridge and everything sort of melts together into like one thing. And, and, and I'm like, I, I don't see it. Where is it? She's like, it's on the third shelf to the right on the, and I'm like, I, it's, it's not there. We must be out. And my wife, I can hear like the sigh. (sighs) She walks around the counter, over to the fridge, reaches, and right in front of my face, on the shelf, right in front of me, is the exact item that she's asked me to grab from the fridge. Or have you ever had that moment where you're like, where are my glasses? Or, or, or my keys or my wallet, right? And you're walking around with your keys in your hand looking for your keys, looking for your glasses, but they're on your face, wallets in your hand as you're rummaging through everything in the house trying to find this item that, that is there. Now, some of you, most, mostly women cannot relate, <laughs> but I think all of us at some level have encountered this. This thing, like something is staring us right in the face. And and, and it was there the whole time. And I, I didn't see it. I didn't even know it was there. You know, when I was uh, 20 years old, I was a part of a ministry training program through Applegate Christian Fellowship. It was called the School of Ministry. And myself and 36 other guys spent a year living together in a, in a three-bedroom A-frame house on the, the property at Applegate. And during my time there, there were these classes that were given that uh, were aimed at helping us learn the Bible, understand not only how uh, to understand it for ourselves, but how to teach it to others, how to, how to use the scriptures in discipling others. Now, we were also taught a trade. Uh, we were taught some construction skills and how to play guitar, and none of us got super good at that. Uh, but we, we picked up just enough to be able to bang out four chords and sing some worship songs and lead others in worship During one particular retreat, we walked through a portion of scripture in uh, Matthew 24 and 25 called the Olivet Discourse And it's Jesus's telling of future events what what is going to happen? And uh, it describes prophetically the second coming and uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the judgment of Israel. And and, and there's a pretty incredible uh, amount of Scripture to, to sort through there and think through. Of particular note to me, though, was a parable that Jesus gives in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It was the parable of the sheep and the goats. And as it was taught to me, the passage opened up with incredible significance it, it was the imagery of the nations being brought before the Lord and God separating out the the sheep on the one hand and the goats on the other and and he goes on to say you know to to the sheep you know you you, you visited me while I was in prison you clothed me when I was naked you fed me when I was hungry and and so he gives a promise to them he he says to the faithful, come you who are blessed by my Father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. And then there, there's the goats, the other side of that equation, those who who don't care for those who have gone to prison, those who are poor, sick, or or naked. And and Jesus personalizes that. He says, you, you thought that you were doing those acts unto people but really this is how you were treating me personal that this is how you were you were handling me and so to the goats he says because you didn't do those things depart from me you curse it into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels and I remember like, thinking about the implications of this passage. After, the, after this teaching, my head was swirling with the implications of this portion of Scripture. It included themes about the second coming, the great white throne and the judgment of the nations, the value of justice in the life of a believer, a believer and how, how we treat the poor and those who have been imprisoned and the sick and the needy. It talked about the nature of hell, how it was created for Satan and for his angels. The authority of the king. He's the one who we all will stand before and give an account of our lives before. The eternality of God's plan of redemption. And I went home after or after that weekend and... Uh, Got some time with my family. Now, my, my brother at this time, my younger brother, Caleb, he was uh, 15 at the time and was battling leukemia. He was in and out of the hospital and had just done a stint up at OHSU up in Portland, receiving chemo treatment, and he happened to be home that weekend, and I and I really wanted to connect with him on the heels of this retreat and me living somewhere else. It was I was the first one to move out in our household and so i I could feel that with my brothers and like i needed to somehow connect with them and and be aware of what was going on in their world and and chemo chemo had had uh, you know some terrible effects on my brother he had had to be on prednisone and there was a lot of suffering involved and and everything else so i wanted to i wanted to find some way to encourage him right i wanted to find some way to connect say something hopeful draw his attention to the lord and, um, and so I, I sat down with Caleb and started a discussion. When, and I said to him, hey, what, what's your favorite passage of scripture? And again, I, you know, I'm trying to steer the conversation towards something hopeful. And, and Caleb says to me, I think it's the parable of the sheep and the goats. And, and immediately my mind goes back to like this retreat that we just had. Learning about all these theological concepts that are tucked away in this portion of Scripture and what that means for the judgment of the nations and everything else, and, and I was like, "Whoa, Caleb! Uh, like, that's a that's a really deep passage in Scripture. Like, why why that one? Why is that your favorite?" And quite frankly, I was surprised that he even knew that one off the top of his head. And he looked at me like I was stupid. And he said, well, because I'm a sheep. It was like the simplest insight. And and really the point of the passage. (laughs) And in that moment, I realized that in all my study and all my learning, I had missed the most amazing point of the passage. The realization that I was a sheep. And that God had invited me to share in his kingdom. And, and, And it was there the whole time. It was staring me right in the face, the most profound truth of all. But I, but I had missed it. I had missed the forest for the trees that were right in front of my face. Well, today, in our passage, we're going to be surprised to see that the people who should know about the the arrival of the Messiah are the ones that don't. And the ones who shouldn't know are the ones that do. (laughs) Everything that the people in Israel needed to be able to seek him was right in front of their faces. But they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it, not because the evidence wasn't there, but because they were preoccupied with a concern of their own. So let's read through the passage and then we'll we'll kind of talk our way through it over the course of our time together. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now after this was born, or now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born? King of the Jews, for we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. and when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, and they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And when, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And then opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod they departed to their own country by another way We're going to dive into a little bit of history today I just lay this out as a sort of forewarning will meander in between some historical information and then back to our text. But I, I think it will open up as we gather some of this information and provide us a, with a little bit of a backdrop by which we can see and understand this story so much better. The people that are mentioned in this story really divide into two categories quite easily. For those of you who are note-takers... The people in our study divide into these two categories. Those who live in, number one, faithful anticipation, like the Magi, and those who live in faithless preoccupation, like the others in our story. Those who live in faithful anticipation and those who live in faithless preoccupation. So... Thinking about those who live in faithful anticipation. We have, we have to think about the Magi here. Who are the Magi? Who were they? Well, there, there's been much superstition and extrapolation built around the identity of these men that traveled from the East. The Magi first appear in history in the 7th century BC as a tribe within the Median nation uh, in eastern, eastern Mesopotamia. And many historians consider them to have been Semites, and 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 if that's true, that means that they, along with the Jews and the Arabs, were descendants of Noah's son, Shem. It may also be that, like Abraham, the Magi came from ancient Ur in Chaldea, the the historical birthplace of what would become uh, Babylon. Now there's some interesting reasons for why that the the Magi of course were astrologers and if you remember back to the Tower of Babel, what was happening there? The, the people in Babel were building a ziggurat, an observatory of the stars. They said we're going to we're going to climb up to the heavens, and they used that observatory to to look at the stars and uh, to prognosticate, many people theorize. And so it seems that they may have had their roots in that. The, the name Magi soon came to be associated solely with the hereditary priesthood within that tribe. And the Magi became skilled in astronomy and astrology, which in that day, uh, those two were, were closely associated. They had a sacrificial system. It was somewhat uh, similar and and kind of resembled the one that God gave Israel through Moses. They were involved in various occult practices, including sorcery, and uh, they were especially noted for their ability to interpret dreams. And it is from their name, Magi, that we get our words magic and magician. Now, in the Bible, we, we learn about the Magi in, in small little doses or portions of Scripture kind of throughout. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse 3, there's this guy, Nergal Saurizer. Please write that down. Nergal Saurizer, the Rab Mag. Uh, that last little title, the Rab Mag, is a derivative of Magi. He was the chief of the Babylonian Magi, and he was with Nebuchadnezzar when he attacked and conquered Judah. He was there as a wise advisor, a wise man, to King Nebuchadnezzar as they attacked Judah. We also learn from the book of Daniel that the Magi were among the highest-ranking officials in Babylon. Because the Lord gave Daniel the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which none of the other seers, none of the other magis or, or prefects were able to do, Daniel was appointed as a ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, we're told that he was the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Because of his great wisdom, and because he had successfully pleaded for the lives of the wise men who had failed to interpret the the king's dream Daniel came to be highly regarded among the magi and the plot against Daniel that that later came that caused him to be thrown into the lion's den is interestingly fomented by the jealous satraps and the other commissioners but not the magi the magi are not listed in the group of people that conspired against Daniel Daniel had saved the wise men the magi through his interpretation of the dream. Now, because of Daniel's high position and his great respect among them, it seems certain that the, the Magi learned much from that prophet about the identity of the one true God, the God of Israel, and about his will and his plans for not only his own people, but for the world through the glorious and coming king and because many jews remained in babylon even after the exile they intermarried with people of of the east it is also likely that the jewish messianic influence remains strong in that region even until new testament times so these magi descended from the shemite nation they were semites probably through Babylonian history rising to power because of their uh, scientific prowess. They were considered magicians and and scientists and astronomers and astrologists. They kind of fit all of those categories. Uh, they continued to exist and were relied upon by royalty and by uh, people in society. Now, during both the Greek and Roman empires, the Magi's power and influence continued uh, in, in eastern provinces and particularly in a place called Parthia. Now, Herod, on behalf of Rome, drove the Parthians out of Palestine between 39 and 37 BC. And and that is also the moment when his kingship began. That's when he started to be called king because he was granted power and authority and, and given military power and also some financial resources to drive out the Parthians. And some... Uh, magi, many of whom were probably outcasts or false practitioners. Uh, they, they lived and spread out throughout the Roman Empire. We encounter them, a couple of them, in the book of Acts, as a matter of fact. Perhaps you'll remember a guy named Simon of Samaria. He, he pops up in Acts chapter 8, uh, verse 9. And a, a tradition refers to him as Simon Magus, or magis, because it, was, it is likely that he was a magi. He had been practicing magic. Um, also, there's the, the Jewish false prophet Bar-Jesus, who, who pops up in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 7. He was also a sorcerer or a, a magician. And these magicians were despised by their own countrymen. They were relied upon by a lot of commoners, But in general, they were not held in in high esteem. Matter of fact, Philo, a first century Jewish philosopher uh, from Alexandria, he called them vipers and and scorpions. So here you have these guys, these, these magi. That's a little background of like, where did these guys come from? They're sort of these, you know, astronomer, astrologist, magician, scientist, people held in high regard for their their wits and their ability to figure things out. What is motivating them to travel such a far distance from their own country to come to Palestine to Jerusalem? Well, apparently, based on the information left over from the influence of Daniel and their possible awareness at least, of the Torah, they were keeping track for hundreds of years of the moment in which the king of the Jews would be born. Think about that. From the time of Daniel to the time that is being discussed here in Scripture, the birth of Jesus, for hundreds of years, these guys have been waiting for this sign of the birth of of the king of Israel. Not only that, but if you remember with me, in the book of Daniel, Daniel had interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel explained to King Nebuchadnezzar that the dream that he had was really a dream about future events. Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about this giant statue and it had different types of Uh, materials that were built into the statue that the statue was made out of and then at the end of his dream this giant rock comes from out of nowhere it's a rock not hewn with human hands and it comes and it strikes the statue and all of those bits of metal gold and silver and bronze and iron and then iron mixed with clay all of those shatter into a million pieces And and, and Nebuchadnezzar was really disturbed by this dream. And so Daniel told him, hey, this is what the Lord has revealed to you. These are successive kingdoms. First, there will be you, King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, the head of gold, then the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greeks, and now Rome, which represented the legs of iron. But in that vision, Daniel also told of the coming messiah he said remember that rock that stone that came not hewn with hands and it shatters the entire statue all those kingdoms sort of fall apart he says that is the coming kingdom let me read to you what he said in daniel chapter 2 verses 44 to 45 and in those days Uh, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Did you catch that? Daniel says this dream that you had is about all the kingdoms that will come after you, but there's coming a kingdom that will never be supplanted. It'll never be taken over by another. It's a kingdom that stands eternal. And that kingdom will outlast and outlive all the other kingdoms. Now, based on what Daniel had revealed, it is likely then that the Magi knew also that after the successive kingdoms laid out in the dream, the kingdom that was eternal would be inaugurated and that the promised messianic king would be born. And so knowing this, these men, these magi, acted in faith, believing in the star that they had seen. They, they had been living in light of this promise for such a long time, passed down through the generations. When the star appears as the sign, as this event, they, they pack up their treasures, they load their beasts, They leave their country, their homes, and they go to honor the king who reigns forever. That's incredible. You see, for them, this king and this kingdom were an inevitable and undeniable reality. They believed the promises, and they came prepared to worship. Now, keep in mind, these guys don't live in israel <laughs> they're not jewish they're pagans they're gentiles they they likely have pagan pagan practices mixed with astrology but but, but they believe and they act in faith they believe so fully that they put everything in the, on the line they they've packed up their best treasures and they put everything on the line to travel and come pay homage and honor the king that has been born. And they do this all because they see the sign, they believe the promises, they cut out and make the journey. Well, verse 2 tells us when they get to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, they say, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship. Now, this brings us to this trying to understand this whole idea of the star what, what, what is it? what is the star and we're not told how the god of revelation caused the magi to know that the king of the jews had been born only that he gave them the sign of his star the one called the king in this passage his star in the east. Now, almost as much speculation has been made about the identity of the star as has been made about the identity of the men who saw it. Some suggest that it was Jupiter, the king of the planets. Others claim it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, which was forming uh, the sign of the fish and that it happened in Pisces and that that is connected to the ichthus fish that was was became a part of the symbol of Christianity in the in the early 1st century there was a a document a documentary that came out a few years ago called the star of bethlehem that gave a plausible explanation of of a grand conjunction that would have formed a cross in the sky It was a conjunction of planets, and and as those planets lined up with one another, there was there was a a a season of retrograde where one of the planets began to migrate backwards, and it came to a stop and then came back across the the other planets, in a state of retrograde. Others claim it was a low hanging meteor or an erratic comet. And still others would say, simply, this is an inner vision of the star of destiny in the hearts of mankind. Now, despite the the lyrics of the popular song, We Three Kings, which I, I'm totally ruining this, but I think Mitch is going to sing that after this. And so uh, I, I didn't want to correct his theology up front. I didn't want to you know, make him look bad in front of people, but... Here we are, and we have to deal with what's true. Uh, This is is clear that they were not following the star. It's clear from the fact that when they get to Jerusalem, they have to inquire. They're like, "Okay, where is he? Where's Where's the king? We saw his star come up, but we just know he's supposed to be the king of the Jews. We're here. Where is he? There's no evidence that they continued to shine or that it led them to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, it was not until they were told of the prophesied birthplace of the Messiah in verses 5 and 6 that the star reappeared and then guided them not only to Bethlehem, but to the exact place where the child was. Now, regardless of what exactly happened, it seems that these magi had the leftover teachings of Daniel and a promise from chapter of, num- from Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And, and deep conviction in their own hearts, that the king was being born, brought them to the place of coming to Jerusalem, finding out where is the king supposed to be born, hearing from the scribes that he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and then making their way to Bethlehem. And as a result of believing these prophecies, these men left their homes in the east, they traveled all the way to Judah, to worship the king of the Jews. Now, there's some nuance here in the original language that is at least interesting to think about. The idea of, of them coming to Jerusalem and, and inquiring is in the present continual in the Greek. That means that they were asking everywhere. They were, they were going all over the place saying, hey, where is he? Hey, Hey, do you know where the king is? Hey, excuse me, do you know where the king is? They were asking all over the place. And this evidently began to stir the whole city. And word eventually gets back To Herod. And both he and the entire city are troubled by these guys showing up asking about a king that has been born. You'll read in verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. Now you would think that the people in Jerusalem would be excited. You know, haven't they been hoping in a Messiah? Is it this the moment that that they've been waiting for but they're they're troubled by this? Why is that largely it become it seems to be because of of Herod now Herod was called the king of israel and and he was ruthless. his father was this guy named Antipater and he was an Edomite and Antipater married the daughter of a, a Nabataean king in Petra, which, if you, any of you guys have seen the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you see the big stone, um, you know, temple that they go into right before he walks on the invisible bridge and passes all the tests and everything. Uh, that stone edifice is in Petra, and that's the ancient Nabataean civilization. And Antipater married into that royal family and gained some prestige in, in that way. And when Pompey invaded Palestine, Herod's father partnered with Rome and eventually befriended Mark Antony, which you you might remember his name because he was in a, a, an affair with Cleopatra. There was a big movie made about it in the like 1930s or something like that. Uh, I mean, just a a very prominent historical figure. But he becomes friends with Mark Antony. And, and one year later, uh, he gives him citizenship uh, and, and that citizenship then extends to the, re- the rest of his family. It extends to his sons. And as a result of that, Herod, his son, Antipater's son, gains citizenship and also is now integrated into this sort of royal family friendship through the process. Eventually, Herod was appointed as the governor of Galilee in, in 47 BC by his father Antipater. And then six years later, Mark Antony um, makes him the Tetrarch of Galilee. And then one year later after that, the Parthians invade and Rome says, okay, look, we need you to rule Over this and shut down the Parthian invasion. And so Rome gives him military power and then also gives him some copper mines on some nearby islands so that now he has the financial resources to fund anything that he wants to do. And he has the military power to exercise Rome's authority in the region. And that is the moment where he becomes a king in the area. And this is a position that he ends up maintaining for 32 years. Because they gave him financial resources and military power, he used it to the fullest extent, and he ruled with an iron fist. Now, Herod's chief appeal to Rome was the merciless efficiency with which he was able to extract taxes from the people. He had murdered the Hasmoneans. These were the sons of the Maccabeans. And you remember the Maccabeans launched a revolt against the Greeks. That's what they're famous for. And he was afraid that they were going to do it again, so he just killed anybody that was a Hasmonean. He wanted to make sure that nothing could compete with his authority and with Rome's authority. Now, as Herod aged, he became increasingly paranoid. He became. A, so afraid of losing his grip, of losing his power. You see, control was his idol. One of his wives, Miriam, had a brother, Aristobulus, who was the high priest, and Herod was afraid of Aristobulus, and so he murdered him. And then he killed his wife, Miriam, too. His paranoia was was legendary. He was afraid that one of his two sons would take his throne, and so he, he murdered them both. By the time his life ended, he had murdered his wife, her brother, her two sons, her grandfather, and her mother. Just a wicked, wicked guy. His entire life was one of plotting And execution. And five days before his death, we're told that he executed all of his descendants who might have laid claim to his throne. In in one of the final acts of his evil life, he gathered all the distinguished citizens of Jerusalem and put them in prison. And then he gave orders, gave commands, that the moment that he died, all of them should be slaughtered. Everybody that he had rounded up from Jerusalem should should be slaughtered. And and this is what he said. These people will not weep when I die, he said. And I want them weeping even if they weep over someone else. (laughs) So even at his death, there was a great slaughter. Now, historically, we know that Herod died either, some people say around 4 B.C., or around 1 B.C. So that puts the timing of Jesus' birth right in the same window of Herod's greatest acts of paranoia and fear. You see, Herod was preoccupied with a kingdom of control. He didn't want to lose power. He didn't want to lose authority. And when the wise men show up in Jerusalem and start asking questions about the birth of the new king of Israel, it struck right at the heart of what he had been fearing would happen. And Herod's greatest fear is losing control of his kingdom, his power, his control over others. And the announcement then of this competing king was a threat to his kingdom of clay. But he's not the only one who's preoccupied. He's not the only one because Jerusalem is also afraid. They hear the announcement of God's promised Messiah and instead of being overjoyed and flooding into Bethlehem, all of the city is like, oh no... Oh, great, look, we, we just don't want any trouble. The, the, the whole city is stirred by these wise men who come and start asking about a king. And they, they're all aware of the paranoia of King Herod. So they don't want anything that will upset the apple cart. As a matter of fact, in their city, right next to the temple in Jerusalem sat the Fortress Antonia, which was built by Herod. And inside of the Fortress Antonia dwelt a huge military presence on behalf of Rome. And and so the fear... That, that this was gonna bring Rome's wrath on Jerusalem was a very real fear. And they just said, look, we just wanna live our lives in comfort. We don't wanna be disturbed. So like, keep, keep this noise about the king down. We, we just don't, we don't want any problems. The fear that there would be a revolt and violence kept them from acting. You see, for them, their comfort was more valuable. Than Christ their comfort was more valuable than Christ Herod was preoccupied with the kingdom of control but the people of Jerusalem were preoccupied with the kingdom of comfort they just didn't want anything to upset what was going on in their world in verse 4 coming back to our text after the king hears this and is troubled with all Jerusalem He assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So, Herod, Says, okay, where's where is this king supposed to be born? He gets the scribes, he gets the, the chief priests together and says, What's up with the coming king? Where's he supposed to be at? Now, interestingly, the scribes and the chief priests are the top biblical scholars <laughs> of the day. They know the scriptures forward and backward. The the scribes in ancient Israel were learned men whose business it was to study the law and to transcribe it. Remember, they didn't have copy machines? So that was all done by hand. They they wrote commentaries on it. They were also hired on occasions when the need for a written document arose or when an interpretation of a a legal point was needed. We, We know that Ezra from the Old Testament was a, a scribe he was a teacher and well versed in the law of Moses according to Ezra chapter 7 verse 6 the scribes took their job of preserving scripture very very seriously they they would copy and recopy the old testament scriptures meticulously they they even had this practice of of counting every letter and then counting the spaces between the letters to ensure accuracy And if there was even one error, they would burn that copy and then start over again, rewriting the same portion of Scripture. And we can even thank the Jewish scribes for preserving the Old Testament portion of our Scriptures so meticulously, so perfectly. It's because of their thoroughness that we have the Old Testament preserved so well. Matter of fact, the, the, the scribes had this practice where where they had to do a ceremonial washing. They would do like a, a sort of baptism style cleansing before they could write down copies of the scriptures. But then anytime that they came across the name of God, the Tetragrammaton, anytime they came across the name, they would get up and go and ceremonially wash again and then come back and they could continue writing. Now, that, can you imagine? You know, like some verses will have God's name multiple times in just one verse. They're like, "Oh, time to take a bath again." Oh, I need another bath. And they didn't just like turn on the faucet, right? They had to like fill something, or go to a river, or you know, uh, find a spring somewhere, or go down to a well. Like it wasn't an easy process, but they did this meticulously out of reverence for the Scriptures. They took their job extremely seriously. And and because of this, the Jews became increasingly known as the people of the book because of their faithful study of the Scriptures. Particularly the law and how it should be followed. Everything was rooted, even their civil law was rooted in Scripture. Now, Oftentimes, the scribes are associated with the Pharisees, although you could be a Pharisee and not a scribe, um, and, and you could also be a scribe and, and not a Pharisee, but they were closely related because they were experts of the law and teachers of the people. They were interpreters of the law, and they were widely respected in their community as a, a result of their knowledge or as a result of their dedication, but, but here's, their, here's their dilemma. They're preoccupied as well. They, they don't leave. Like, they, let me put it to you like this. Herod is like, Hey, where's the coming Messiah supposed to be born? And they're like, Well, according to the scriptures in Bethlehem. Awesome. What are you going to do about it? I don't know. I guess I'll write some more commentaries. I'll take some more notes. I'll study some more scriptures. And so you're, you're not going to leave Jerusalem? You're not going to go? No, no, we're, we're, we're fine. We're content to just think about it. It's just fun to think about, isn't it? Like, what if Micah 5.2 actually came to pass? Like, what if there really was a king born in Bethlehem? <laughs> That'd be crazy, huh? Wow. They're content to just think about it. Theirs is a kingdom of contemplation. Herod loved his kingdom of control, Jerusalem love their kingdom of comfort. And the scribes and chief priests love their kingdom of contemplation. Their kingdom exists only in the mind. It is the study of the words that gives them power and influence. It's the keeping of laws that elevates them in self-righteousness over others in their world. It is theoretical excellence that drives their identity. And even now, with the arrival of the hope of Israel, the one whom the scriptures are talking about, they are content to give the facts of his prophetic arrival to the king, to King Herod, and yet never to leave Jerusalem to worship him. They're more content to think about Christ than to go and bow before him. They're preoccupied with words and not the word that became flesh. They're more preoccupied with thinking about the Messiah than actually knowing and worshiping Him. It's to this same type of crowd that Jesus' rebuke comes in John chapter 5, verse 39, when He says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Oh, heavy, heavy rebuke. Now, I I think, just can we just pause here for a moment? Do you realize there's a warning in there for us? Something in there for us to to stop and think about, meditate on. Since Heritage first came into being, there have been about 650 Sundays since Heritage started. During that time, you've heard the word preached, the gospel proclaimed faithfully. But we need to be careful that this isn't just about learning more information learning more facts. This is not just a mental exercise. This is discipleship to Jesus. What's supposed to happen here is as we come to the Scriptures and as we learn about Jesus, that our lives are shaped by the reality of what He has said and done. That it changes the way that we live. That we come under His authority and under His Lordship. You see, the truest test of discipleship is not the number of facts about scriptures that we can recall or how much we know. The true test of discipleship is whether or not we are living for the king and living for the kingdom. Is it the kingdom of Christ or just the kingdom of contemplation? Are we content to just sit and think about things or are we going to do something in response to the knowledge of the truth? Well, the scribes and the chief priests, they're, they're content to just stay in Jerusalem. And Herod goes back to the wise men. He summons the wise men secretly, verse 7, coming back to the scriptures here. And he ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he, he gets an idea, like, how, how long have, have you guys been on this journey? What About when did the Messiah arrive? And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and... Search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest of the place where the child was. Notice a couple of things here. He's trying to figure out what the window is of when the Messiah has been born. By the time the 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 Magi, get there, you're no longer talking about a baby, but now the Bible is referring to him as a child. So it's within probably about a two-year window here that that Jesus is there. And apparently, uh, uh, Joseph and Mary ended up staying in Bethlehem after the birth of Jesus for a season. And so they went on their way. They find Jesus. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding joy, verse 10. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is where the tradition comes from, that there, there, there were three wise men because there were three different types of gifts, although uh, it, it's likely that there was, there was more than that. And here they offer their gifts in worship. At the end of this short section or this interaction here in Scripture, it is not Herod or anyone from Jerusalem, which is called the city of the great king, nor even the scribes or the chief priests themselves that come to worship Jesus. It's Gentile, pagan, astrologers from another country that make their way to see Jesus. Can you... Just imagine this from God's perspective. Like, think about this. God has been waiting since before he laid the foundations of the earth for this moment. This is like the apex of history. God has been waiting since the foundations of the world to reveal his son. All of creation has been waiting and groaning for the Messiah's arrival. Heaven is in awe. They put together a little gospel choir up there in the heavens. They broke out in in glory, glory, hallelujah. Announcing it to shepherds. They're like, we don't even care who the crowd is. We just got to sing about this. The heavens have bowed to the King of Kings. Even the stars in the universe have aligned themselves to announce the coming of God's Son. Everything in history has been leading to this moment. This is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made within the Trinity since before the foundations of the world and God has come down in the person of the Son. This is that moment right here. And the people who should know, don't. And the people who shouldn't know, do. Why? Because some were living in anticipation. Anticipation. And others were living in preoccupation. The scribes do nothing with their theological knowledge. All their study didn't help them. They missed it. The people of Jerusalem don't want to upset Herod, so they never leave. They don't want to be outside of their comfort, and so they missed it. And all Herod can do is think about how he can kill the competing king and his kingdom, and he misses it. Is there any chance that you found yourself preoccupied with any of these kingdoms? With the kingdom of control? I just, I don't want anybody telling me. I don't want a Lord over my life. I, I don't want, I don't want Jesus having authority over me. Is there any chance that some of you might be dealing with that? Or, or, or leaving your kingdom of comfort? Look, I just don't want a whole lot of disruption for my life. I mean, if, if, if it's going to affect my finances or if it's going to make me have to step out in faith or if it's going to make me have to actually get to know my neighbor and love him and, and talk about Jesus, or it's going to cost me relation. I just, listen, I don't, I, I don't want to be uncomfortable. Or perhaps our kingdom is contemplation where where we're content to think about all the things of Scripture and come in here Sunday by Sunday and, and talk about Jesus and theory. Like, wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus did this or did that? And we go, yay! Yay, Jesus! You could do it! But we're, like, never ready to go and participate in God doing that through us. Is that a possibility? Only one group came to worship Jesus. They're Gentile, pagan, astrologers from hundreds of miles away. The people closest to his birth feel threatened by the baby's authority. They don't want to lose their control. They don't want to lose their comfort or the contemplative life of the mind. They're content to let the kingdom of God pass them by rather than bow before the king. And they exchange the eternal kingdom of God for a kingdom of their own making not the magi they saw the king and the kingdom and the fulfillment of god's promises and they said hey he's worth our time he's worth our treasure he's worth our travel we'll leave our homes and our families and we'll get on the back of a camel and we'll come all the way across the desert and we'll go through the city looking for him and then find out he's not in that city and we'll travel to another city and, and when we get there we're going to rejoice to give up our treasure, to give of our time, to give of our talents. We're going to rejoice to kneel at the crib of the King of Kings. You know, it's the same thing that God is doing through all those who worship Jesus presently. These guys had no idea, but that the treasure that they brought is actually probably the treasure that would fund Joseph and Mary as they had to flee for their lives from Bethlehem to Egypt. Their worship became the means by which the king and his kingdom were preserved. And so too it is right now here, you and I in this sanctuary as we lift up the name of Jesus here and then in our lives as we go into our lives and we continue to live for the king and live for the kingdom that is the means by which God is redeeming the world. It's the tool that he uses. (laughs) It's incredible. So in conclusion, I want to talk to you about my brother Caleb. A year later, my brother Caleb went home to see the great shepherd. And, you know, it brings me a lot of joy to know that he heard these words from Jesus. Come you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Caleb knew his shepherd. Caleb knew his kingdom. Caleb saw the promised land, just like Caleb of the Old Testament, and he believed in the promises of God. And despite all the trials that he endured in this short life, he lived for the kingdom. The question I think this text is asking us though is are you living for that kingdom? Are we, am I living for that kingdom? Which kingdom are you living for? In this season are you anticipating, living with anticipation? Are you anticipating with the God of the universe the celebration and worship of His Son. Are you excited to talk about Jesus in this season? Are you excited to see what God's going to do in 2021 and how He's going to use all the trials of, of 2020 for His glory as the church continues to live for His purpose and for His glory? Or are we living with faithless preoccupation and living for a kingdom of our own? Right now, I believe at this moment, the Holy Spirit is bringing comfort to those who are living with anticipation and conviction that should drive us to repentance for those of us who may be living in preoccupation. Amen? Would you pray with us? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge. Thank you for the scriptures that continually remind us of your son. And as we think about these things, in those areas, God, where there is conviction that is happening from Your Spirit, not just the condemnation that comes with us and knowing our flaws and whatever else, but those things that You highlight in our lives. You say, hey, there's there's compromise here. You're not living for me here. Lord, that we would yield to Your hand, that we would not have hard hearts like Herod or Jerusalem or the priests and the scribes, that we would be soft, be ready to respond, ready to turn, ready to live for the kingdom of Christ. So Father, have your way in us, refine us, and use us for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.